My name is Chris Vasquez. I'm a voice actor, podcaster, and lifelong Houstonian. But I gotta admit, I don't know the city and what's happening in it as well as I think a Houstonian should. I mean, if someone from out of town walked up to me and asked me what there is to do, I wouldn't know what to tell them. That's what inspired this podcast. I want to clue you in on news, cool events, quirky things our fellow Houstonians do, what the best new food places are, and highlight people that are doing their part to better this city, becoming real-life Houston heroes. This is Houston Happenings. What is up, Houston, and welcome back to another episode of the Houston Happenings Podcast. I've got a really good episode for you guys today, and it's a long one. If you've been a long-time listener, you'll know that I've been following the saga of Bernie's Burger Bus for a couple of months. A few months ago, we were able to speak to David Atkins, who took time out of his busy schedule to deliver Bernie's Burger Bus to the masses on his own dime. Now, I am fortunate enough to be able to speak to Bernie's Burger Bus founder, Justin Turner himself. We talk about a great number of things, including the rise and very unfortunate fall of Bernie's Burger Bus, how he was once a competitor and winner on Chopped on the Food Network, and how Bernie's Burger Bus could possibly rise from the ashes. Here is my conversation with Justin Turner. Mr. Justin Turner, welcome to the Houston Happenings Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come on the show. I really appreciate it, sir. Absolutely, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. So for those of my listeners who have been living under a rock and don't know who you are, can you give me a quick introduction about yourself, Justin? Uh, Yeah, my name is uh, Justin Turner. I am the uh, former owner of Bernie's Burger Bus here in Houston, Texas. Okay, awesome. Great. So, of course, I want to learn about Justin Turner, owner of Bernie's Burger Bus, but I also want to get to know Justin Turner, human being. You've had quite an interesting life, if I'm not mistaken. So I'd like to kind of talk about things in, you know, chronological order and work our way towards Bernie's and your time here in Houston. So for starters, you are not a Houston native. Is that correct? That is correct. I'm uh, originally from Chicago. Um, I moved to Memphis. end of my sophomore year, middle of my sophomore year in high school and finished school in Memphis, uh, started cooking uh, in Memphis at the uh, age of 15 at a a famous little burger uh, franchise, uh, fast food place, and um, worked at an amazing barbecue place in Memphis called Corky's. I mean, most of my my high school career was spent at restaurants. And... um, I decided uh, at working at Outback Steakhouse um, <laughs> that I was uh, going to do this for a living, and this is going to be, you know, the career path that I, I chose. And I tried to convince my mom to go to culinary school. She was not about that life, and, and said <laughs> that uh, my um, my uh, history with school in general um, was not that good. And she felt like it'd be a waste of her, you know, single mother money. And I um, got to convince her to go to this class. It was an amazing class. It was only three months long. Um, but it was with a great chef named Joseph Carey. And um, he kind of took me under his wing during those three months and I learned a ton. And then he got me under a great chef in Memphis named Erling Jensen. Um, I worked for Erling for just over two years. And uh, that I would consider is a lot of my beginning culinary uh, physical training. Uh, then I was fortunate enough to work with a, another great chef in Memphis named Miles McMath. And 
he was kind of uh, the the addition to the culinary side, but also the the business side. He really took me under his wing and taught me how to run the business of restaurants and and how to to manage that side and and how to treat your staff and manage your staff. And and so uh, I was fortunate enough to to get two uh, great mentors early on, and that really kind of helped uh, boast my career in that area. And even outside that area, I, I got a, a, my first executive chef job um, in Monticello, Illinois, which is about 30 minutes oh, away okay. from Champaign, Illinois. Uh-huh. Uh, very very University fancy place, Illinois. it sounds like. <laughs> it, it is, but it's only 1,200 people. And um, ah, it was okay. a really cool, unique experience. The uh, Chicago Bears were playing in Champaign because Soldier Field was being renovated. And so I thought it was a cool opportunity for me to get close to seeing the Bears again, being a Chicago native. And uh, so I took this crazy job in a town of, you know, very little people. And uh, I did that. And that was my first, you know, experience as being an executive chef at 23. And then I came back and, and continued to work for uh, Chef Miles, and uh, he had just opened up his own restaurant, his first uh, restaurant, and um, I came in as the sous chef and pastry chef, which was a great opportunity. It was taking a step back, um, but to do it in, in you know an environment of learning what it's like to run your own business. I'd worked for him at a country club and he had taught me how to operate the country club, but it was, it was good to see him in, in his environment running his own <clears throat> store. Uh, from there, I got a few other opportunities. Um, one of them being at a, a tiny place with a, a great man named Michelle Lenny as the, uh, the chef there, um, changing the menus called Cafe Society. And there I met a basketball player named Shane Battier. And um, he was very interested in having me cook meals for him and drop them off at his house. I told him kind of right off the bat, like, that's probably not something that's going to do you any good. It would benefit you more for me to cook and hand it to you directly and get all the nutrition uh, versus heating something back up the second time and just getting some calories and proteins and of course. carbohydrates. And so he was like, yeah, love it. Uh, went over, cooked for him and, and his wife and his personal assistant and got the job that night and started a very long uh, career and uh, friendship um, that lasted eight, uh, just over almost eight years. Um, just shy of eight years. And, uh, yeah, that's what got me to Houston. <clears throat> um, and so, uh, when he was traded, he asked me to come along. I had been working for him for just over three years at that point. And, um, I followed him down here to Houston and he, um, yeah, I ended up working for him, uh, just over four years here in Houston. And, I got the itch and uh, anyone who's listening to this who's a restaurateur knows what that itch is and and you got to get it back in the restaurant and got to cook for a lot of people and you got to work, you know, 18 hours a day and be completely miserable. And, <laughs> uh, it sounds like we all life. know. Yeah. I mean, once you get hooked, you're hooked. And so it's like, um, you know, several, several reasons why I got hooked to this industry, but, uh, you know, cooking for, 
um, basically, you know, two and a half people um, a day is like, you know, it's, it's a very uh, unchallenging environment. And I got very, I was starting to get very comfortable. And so what I tried to do is just get a second job. And so I um, started talking to restaurateurs here, uh, famous ones, um, and they kind of blew me off, um, literally, and like yeah. you know, gave me no kind of credit um, that I could I could do anything that I'm anything more than a home cook, and that pissed me off. And yeah, if, if really only they could see you now, right? <laughs> yeah, and so. Um, it happened at the right time. I just went to Portland to visit my uh, brother, and uh, he uh, took me to see the amazing street food scene. This was, you know, eleven and a half years ago, and uh, I was like, "Wow, I could do that in Houston! Like, there's nothing like this." Um, I've seen a little bit of it in Austin, but like, there's nothing like this in Houston. And so I decided to come back and start a side business, uh, doing a food truck. And like, um, that quickly, I, I, I uh, that's the summer of 2000, uh, the, I'm sorry, the spring of 2010. Um, by the time, um, I got open, it was the fall of 2010. And, uh, I knew quickly that, I can't do this and continue to work for Shane. And so I had that hard conversation of having to let that job go and focus on a job that was not paying me any money. And um, I was working <laughs> 19 hours a day and I was living off of ground beef. And yeah, I mean, uh, it, it was a, it was a, it was a definite shock to the system. You know, I made very good money. I had a very good life. He treated me better than good, you know, uh, better than great, I should say. And so, um, I left all that to do, you know, a food truck with no money coming in and, uh, hope, hopes and a dream, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and to be clear, all of this you did be, and you never really had any, uh, like you never really went to culinary school. It was just kind of like learning from uh -huh. this guy here and this person there. And you also said you totally. worked in, 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 in some sort of fine dining establishment as well. Right. Well, the first restaurant Erling Jensen's was, uh, very fine dining it, at, at that time in Memphis. It was, if not the, the number one, it was in the top three. So it was very much like you need, you need to follow the dress code in order to get in. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Uh -huh. And it's, you know, it was a 40 seat, 60 seat restaurant. I think at the time it's got a little bit more and it's definitely the atmosphere has changed, uh, to having more of a casual side of the restaurant. But when I was there, they didn't have the bar that, you know, it's an old establishment in, in Memphis. And back then it was the fine dining establishment. I mean, we, uh, everything that I learned technique wise, uh, was in that kitchen in that first two years because it was such a French brigade style. Um, you know, I, I started as basically a dishwasher, you know, I had, my jobs were cleaning shrimp and cleaning leeks and peeling <laughs> the, potatoes. The glamorous stuff, in other and, words. Yeah, exactly. So like, um, but it was a very much brigade style kitchen and, and, you know, I, I give early in the credit, but really it's the sous chef, 
the two sous chefs in there, Justin Young and and uh, Jimmy Gentry, who like they kicked my ass for two years and and taught me how to uh, be a cook and respect the food and put out a product that you're proud of all the time. Um, make it from scratch, even though it's easier to buy it already done. You know they. Uh, that kitchen was 100% from scratch. You know, we, um, we made every stock for every sauce. And, I mean, it was everything. So, uh, we did all our own butchery, you know, before it was cool to do, uh, nose to tail butchery. We did, you know, it was, <clears throat> that was a really great kitchen to work in and, and with some great people. And so, and then, you know, Chef McMath, when I worked with him at the country club, that was a, uh, that was a place that had five outlets. Um, so we had five different restaurants in one kitchen. And so that really taught me not, you know, like I said, the business side, but it taught me about how to, to, to basically write five menus that interject ingredients and have, you know, um, um, you know, multi-use for, for each ingredient so that you're not just ordering one thing for one dish of the five menus that you're doing. And, you know, it was a, that period of my life, as short as it was, I think it was just, uh, just over a year like that, you know, that was amazing. That was like, you couldn't get that in culinary school. You couldn't get the first two years in culinary school. Cause it's, <laughs> you know, you're sitting down at a desk and, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of greatness that comes out of culinary school, but it, it has to come from you first. Like you have to be passionate about it. You can't just go in there and just sit there at a desk and write down and then get up and, and, you know, do it with not really much pressure added to it. Not, you know, doing it for 50 people or 150 people, you know, culinary school teaches you how to fillet one fish. And it does it in an environment that's not subjective to like what a restaurant is, you know, like what that environment is, the time crunch and the, the sense of urgency and the, you're doing it for more than just, you know, five people. Like you're cooking for 50, 100, 200, yeah, it's, it's depending different. on the style. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's a really interesting take because, I mean, I'm not I'm not a chef by any means, but usually when... For example, like in the movies or whatever, when like a chef, like a French style kitchen is portrayed, it, it's all about like structure and it's very like intense and it, it it's stressful. Um, even like, uh, one of my favorite movies, I, I'm I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Chef. It was with John Favreau. Like he worked oh, in yeah. that style of kitchen and he hated it so much that he ended up starting his own food truck. So to hear somebody say that, hey, you know, there's it is like that, but there's a positive side of it. You you can kind of get some like really good lessons out of it. That, that's a really interesting take. Well, you create your own environment. You of course. Know? I've worked, I've worked for people who were, who directed the game, uh, with anger and, uh, fear. Yeah. Uh, and then you've worked with people who directed as the, you know, uh, the father like figure where, you know, I, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. And oh, that's you know, so that, much worse. <laughs> yeah. And so, e e e you know, um, to each their own, but like that is, you know, the styles of management and I found mine that works for me. Um, and you know, the, the reality of the, the, 
the business is you're going to go to culinary school and you're going to have, let's call it 10 instructors. Those 10 instructors are going to teach you how to make mashed potatoes uh, eight different ways or 10 different ways. I'm sorry. When you get out of culinary school and you go to your first job, the first chef you work for, because you're not going to get out of culinary school and just open up your own restaurant. Like that's a, that's a probably a one tenth of 1% type uh, situation. Um, but w- what you are going to do is you're going to go to that first chef that you work for the 11th person, and he's going to teach you the 11th way to make mashed potatoes. So the experience of culinary school is great. If you have the passion and you want to learn and absorb so that when you get out there and you're not cocky and you're arrogant, you have the ability to absorb the lessons and the techniques, because it's all about at first learning to be a craftsman, learning your technique, learning how to saute, learning how to, to braise stuff properly, learning how to uh, fry stuff properly. You know, there's, there's really only five techniques to cooking and you have to master those first. Technique is the first thing that you do, you know, um, and then it's the education, right? So like after you learn the technique, then the beautiful thing about cooking is you're never going to know every ingredient in the world. Like if I want to stump myself, I could still go to this day to somewhere in Chinatown and in a grocery store and I could walk down aisles and I could find shit that I've never worked with and learn. And the beauty of, of after you learn technique is then you can start taking your food memories and your, your knowledge of, of what works together and start using new stuff and then learning how to adapt that and play with that and turn that into something that's delicious. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a sweet spot. Uh, a lot of uh, people will say that, you know, cook probably if they start off, let's say late teens, early twenties, probably somewhere around 28 to 34 is like that sweet spot, right? Where they've got just enough technique and, and enough knowledge where they're dangerous, right? Ah. Someone like me now is a coach, right? I'm 41. <laughs> uh-huh. um, I can't cook on the line seven days a week, you know, 12 hours a day. It's just, I, 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 I could do it for a couple of weeks. Um, but now... You know, I've had to morph more into the coaching role, the role of, you know, being able to, um, you know, fuel the passion and train the skill, um, which is such an important thing. You know, you hire the passion and train the skill. It's the, the, the motto I've always had because you can't train passion. So um, you hire a passionate person, you train their skill. And you motivate them to succeed. And that is the, that is the, the key to developing a really um, uh, boisterous kitchen, you know, uh, kitchen environment, uh, an environment of learning and, and you know, self-betterment. So. Those are really good tips for all the, uh, all the home cooks out there. That's <laughs> very insightful. Yeah. So Justin, I I also read somewhere that uh, you also got on Chopped. Wait, wait, let me rephrase that. Not only did you get on Chopped, but you actually won. And again, this was with no no formal training, right? Like, how was that experience? How did that happen? 
Uh, it was fun. You know, there was a, a large push back when I, it's been like five and a half years, but um, uh, there's a large push um, in the Houston market to sign up for Chopped. I didn't really, I've always liked the format of the show and watching the show. And in fact, when I worked for Shane, we would do um, Chopped stuff like where he would go to the grocery store and buy stuff and then I'd have to turn it into a meal. And we did that several times. So it was something that I'd always like thought about, but just thought like, you know, I don't want to go through the the lengthy process, blah, blah, blah. So you're but saying you kind of like Facebook. put in some practice before on your own time. Oh yeah, for sure. Huh, that's um, interesting. And, and Shane, <laughs> Shane would be the one to totally give credit for that. Um, I think, I, I don't know who had the idea. I'd like to say I did. He'd probably like to say he did, but um, <laughs> the, uh, we decided, I think the first time, you know, they did it, it was just him and his wife, Heidi. But then like several times, uh, other friends of his would, would, they'd go to the grocery store and they'd be instructed to buy stuff that's on the inside of the grocery store and Shane and Heidi would go buy stuff that was on the outside of the grocery store. So, you know, fresh stuff. And so then they'd come together and I'd have to do a meal for four people, like a three course meal for four people in an hour. And that would be like our chopped That's amazing. Uh, thing. And sometimes we would do it where there was no electricity or gas involved. Like it all had to be outside on fire wow. and no blenders and no, you know, food processors and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, uh, we've, you know, we had a good time. It was, you know, it was fun for me. It was fun for them to watch. And so, um, I, <clears throat> I really enjoyed, um, doing it and I just never really thought I'd do it on TV. And so when the opportunity was presented and it really was quite easy, it was a short application. A week later, I was doing a Skype interview a week after that, they made the, the decision a week after that they had sent in a film crew to Bernie's to film B roll. And then probably three weeks after that, I'm in New York filming it. And so it was a very like boom, 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 boom. Um, and you know, I was hungry. Uh, unfortunately I never have worked in a restaurant in Houston ever. And so no one knows who I am and they think that like, all I do was, was hamburgers and fries. And so what I wanted to showcase is like, yeah, I do way more than that. Like <laughs> I happen to pick burgers only because if I did something fancy dancy at a food truck, when there wasn't food trucks in Houston, no one's going to walk up to the truck. My, my rule was it's gotta be pizza, hot dogs, or hamburgers and hamburgers. I felt like I could be the most creative. Uh, I can control the grind. I can control making all the condiments, blah, blah, blah. So I felt, um, you know, I was getting typecasted as a, you know, George Costanza of hamburgers. And like, I, um, I used the opportunity of being able to get on chopped as a, a time to showcase that, like, I'm not just a one trick pony. So Oh, okay. So, so you went in there as, as, as essentially a sleeper. People, people thought you were yeah. only the bird guy. Watched, I have yeah, not. Have I, I only recently found out about that. Uh, just this morning when I was doing research for, for the episode, I was like, Oh, this guy was on chopped. How about that? Have you watched the last dance? I have not. Okay. Well, after this, 
you need to stop. I don't know what else you got going on today, but at least <laughs> start watching the you know greatest the team of all time. To uh, anyways, I'm not gonna. I'm not, I'm, we're in Houston. <laughs> I'm not gonna start talking about the Bulls. They're not that great right now. But uh, but anyways, you know, um, there's something in there. He talks about like you know fueling his fire, and and Michael Jordan in particular talks about fueling his fire and motivation to you know, prove something and there's opportunities in your life that you can take a hold of those and use that fuel to do something great. Well, those chefs telling me that I can't cook to make me start a food truck, people coming in, you know, being like, Oh, you're a chef. Like, yeah. I mean, that's why I make the ketchup from scratch. That's why I make the mayonnaise <laughs> from scratch, the mustard from scratch. Like yeah. I'm not doing it just for, you know, shits and giggles. So it's like, um, I wanted to show something. It, it was like, I got in there and there, I don't, I really don't care who was going to be there that day. Like I was not going to go home and lose. And so, uh, I had like, yeah, I had a I had a different level of motivation going into that for sure. Of course, so. and that motivation along with the with the practice that you did with Shane before, like I mean, it, it's it's kind of no wonder you won, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. So bringing it back to, to to the main story. So at this point in time, you've scored a gig as a personal chef for an NBA basketball star. You've gone on national TV and you wiped the floor with the competition on Chopped. And now you've moved to Houston when Shane was traded to the Rockets. And, and this obviously led to your uh, your feeling or your need of trying to start up a, a food truck, which later turned into Bernie's Burger Bus. So my question to you is like, how did you come up with the concept for Bernie's? Because, I mean, like you said, I, I guess everyone likes a, a, a burger right? But your burgers can't exactly be described as your typical cheeseburger. You had stuff on the menu, such as uh, the detention burger, which the menu described as having two bacon grilled cheeses used as a bun for two cheddar cheeseburger patties, tipsy onions, and all the fixings that come with the principal burger. Or I think you even at, at, at some point had like a like a hot Cheeto mac and cheese burger that was available for a oh, limited yeah. time, which I'm, I'm actually really sad I never got to try. So how do you come up with the with this stuff, the burgers, the concept? Except for Bernie's, um, you know, uh, I would say uh, the one thing that um, I'm very fortunate uh, to have is uh, just creativity. Like I love food. Um, I I read cookbooks like regular books. You know, so like uh, I love learning about techniques. I love you know reading about flavor combinations. Um, um, I have a very, very vivid food memory from smells to tastes. And so like, um, for me, it's just, you know, sitting around and, and thinking about, uh, what's cool, what's hot, you know, what's now, I think, you know, part of, um, the responsibility in cooking food is it's not for you, you know, once you learn that it's not for you that you're, you're doing it to nourish people, whether it be good nourishment <laughs> or in my case, you know, um, maybe a, a mental nourishment more than a, a, a you know, wow, wasn't the healthiest really of choices. Yeah. Mental nourishment. <laughs> but, but, um, you know, for me, like that is, um, once I, once that switch flipped for me and I, I started realizing 
who I'm cooking for, not that I'm cooking for myself uh, and what I'm doing, the action of what I'm doing, you know, um, that, uh, you know, you have to, you have to adapt. You know, one of the things that I'd tell all the cooks that I ever work with is we have to keep innovating. We have to keep adapting. We have to keep up with the times. We don't want to just make something in this rest on our morals. Like the principal burger, while it's been on the menu uh, from Bernie's from the time it opened to the time it closed, that burger changed probably nine times. And we try to make it better. You know, yes, it was the same formula, ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise, pickles, garlic, roasted tomatoes, lettuce. Uh, it was the same formula, but we tried to make the tomatoes better. We improved the ketchup. I mean, the ketchup that we made was probably uh, in iteration number eight in wow. the 10 years that we were open. Um, so we had changed, you know, we had listened to our feedback because uh, feedback is priceless. It's one of the best devices I've ever gotten is listening to feedback. It's priceless. It's hard to hear it. It's hard to enact it sometimes because you got ego, but uh, mm -hmm. feedback is priceless. And so you got to listen, you got to adapt, you know? Um, and so everything we did, uh, there was a purpose of, a, of, is this the best? Are we doing it the best? Can we do it better? And, um, you know, I think that, uh, that with the combination of, of what we're doing this for, we're doing this for the people we're doing this for the group that comes into our restaurant, the group that gets on Instagram and takes pictures. You know, my staff at Bernie's was probably the average age was like 23. Um, you know, uh, and so I had a very young staff, um, and I tried to do what they wanted. You know, I listened to them. I see what they're snacking on. They all snack on hot Cheetos. And I'm oh, like, yeah. well, <laughs> Shit, I'm going to come up with something. I don't eat hot Cheetos. So I had to do something that was, you know, for them. And it, that one started off as just a, you know, uh, an idea in my head. I was um, bored in between lunch and dinner. I decided to mess around. I went to the grocery store, got some stuff, came up with that, made it. And then we took a picture at the bar in the Heights. And it got around to the four restaurant or three at that point, just the three restaurants. And, uh, yeah, it was like, when are you making that for us? When are you doing that for us? When are we going <laughs> to have that? And so that fueled it into, all right, well, I might as well do it. If I'm going to do it and make it for you guys, I'm going to do it and make money. Like, of course. Um, so yeah, that's, that's typically how an idea starts. Um, and you know, uh, I've been, I've just been lucky to love food. I mean, <laughs> any pictures you've seen of me, you can tell I love to eat. So it's like, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I thoroughly enjoy food. I thoroughly enjoy the, um, the hospitality of feeding somebody. I, I, I fell in love with handing someone over a plate of food and watching them enjoy it. Um, yeah, absolutely. and, uh, you know, that's, if you think about it, there's a lot of stuff that you do that, you know, sometimes could take three days to prepare, uh, for someone to eat in 15 minutes. Like that is, um, sadistic in every way you put into that much work, uh, for something that someone, you know, consumes in 15 minutes and, you know, in 12 hours, 
takes a shit. Like it's, <laughs> if you look at it through the course of what it is, it's pretty like, geez, Louise, you put in all that effort for someone to just crap it out 12 hours later. It's like, um, yeah, they, that smile, that memory, that moment that, you know, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to be a part of for so many people's lives. You know, I've been, um, I've had my food truck at people's weddings because that's where, you know, couples had met and that was their favorite place to go eat. And, you know, to be a part of, uh, food memories. Cause I, that's what I attribute food to. If I taste something and I think back, you know, it was a food memory, right? Like I could go back to time and like, think about, you know, being eight years old at my great uncle's house, eating my first steamed artichoke with crab bernays in the center and being like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, how have I not with the fish sticks? I mean, my mom, I love her to death. She's just not a good cook. She was, you know, frozen and box cook. Um, she never was a scratch cook. And so, um, when I had that for the first time, I was like, there's something else out here. And, um, it fascinated the the hell out of me. And I, I thought like, um, I've got to be a part of this. I've got to figure out a way, uh, you know, to make this part of my life. And and from 15 at, at Wendy's to, to now, um, like I, you know, I've always been fascinated with the art of hospitality and the ever, um, educating, self-educating, uh, uh, thing that food provides from, you know, all different angles, just fascinating. Hey guys, it's Chris. If you're enjoying the show so far, there's a few things you can do to help me out. I really want to encourage you to follow the podcast or subscribe on whatever platform it is you're using to listen. It's currently available on a variety of platforms, including Spotify and YouTube. This helps immensely in getting the podcast visibility up so more people can find it. I've also created a Patreon for Houston Happenings. Patreon is a website that allows you to fund artists and creators directly through a monthly subscription model. Currently, I have two tiers that you can sign up for to pledge monthly. The first is a $2 supporter role that will go towards keeping the podcast going. But I also created a $5 Houston Hero tier that comes with a little extra. Should you choose to sign up to pledge $5 monthly, you'll be getting access to a new segment I'm calling What's Up Chris that is exclusive to Houston Hero Patreon supporters. It will be an extremely informal, loose conversation about what's going on recently with me, what movies and TV shows I'm watching, what games I've just picked up, cool new things that I find that aren't exactly Houston-specific, and more. Expect lots of pop culture talk since I'm a big frickin' nerd. If you're interested in helping the show out, please make sure to head over to patreon.com slash houstonhappenings. Again, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash houstonhappenings. Now let's get back to my conversation with Justin Turner. Definitely. Food, food is a very special thing. I, I think in, in my personal opinion, it, it, it can get to the point where it's, it's very personal sharing a meal with somebody 
can be such a, a an intimate thing. Like there's there's a, a couple of shows that we've been watching, me and my girlfriend, um, where they they've been using food as a way to uh learn or get in get in touch with other cultures. Like th- this one lady goes all around the the U.S. and and starts eating like a uh, Native American food or like Lebanese food, and and they use that as a way not only to connect it to people but also to their culture. And there there's not a lot that you can uh do that with. I mean, I guess music is another thing, but food, food is like on an, on a level of its own to, to be able to do that. I think. Yeah. I mean, it extends cultures, you know, I mean, uh, it, it puts down all the cultural barriers. You share a meal with someone, you can learn a lot about their culture. I think we've learned that from all kinds of food shows and, and how, you know, um, just having a meal, um, and, and what the power of that is, is, you know, it's just incredible. So definitely has me hooked. I'm not leaving this industry anytime soon. I can tell you that. <laughs> Let's hope not. So all of those amazing burger creations that we just talked about, they ended up garnering immense success. Uh, so much so that you eventually left the iconic Bernie's Burger bus behind and moved on to a brick and mortar location in, in, in Belair, I believe was the first one. And then another one in Katy. And then another one in the Heights and then another one in Missouri City, all in the span of about nine years and, and quite literally becoming a, a Houston icon. I mean, I, I think at some point you were named uh, top five places to eat lunch on the Food Network at some point. I mean, that is, pardon my French, one hell of an accomplishment. Uh, according to the timeline on, on the Bernie's website that I saw, like your next step was the moon. And I, I think you were on track to reach it. But. Then 2020 came and along with it, the novel coronavirus and the coronavirus spread across the world, eventually making its way to our fair city. And on March 24th, Harris County issued the stay at home work safe order, which closed all non-essential businesses, including restaurants. Now, I, I realize this was a very difficult time in your life. I mean, it would be for anyone, but can you walk me through how that impacted your business? Yeah. So, um, I mean, it was crazy. Uh, we, uh, the restaurant business itself, uh, not just me, but, uh, all restaurants work off a very low margin. And I want to start off by, by telling that story because when you understand that, you know, some businesses, uh, the airline industries, um, banks, all that, they hold large reserves of cash. The restaurant industry does not. Uh, it's a very low profit. The average successful restaurant is about 7% um, net profit. Uh, 2.5% of that typically goes back to employee um, uh, programs, insurance, stuff like that. So you're talking you know, 4.5% for the, the average um, independent restaurant. Um, and so you work off such low margins. And for me, for example, we had a very large payroll with four restaurants. Um, when our sales dropped off like that, um, a quick decision had to be made. Do you pay your staff? Um, or do you pay your vendors and your, your landlords and, and, uh, your utility companies? Um, and for me, there was no question. I pay my staff and, you know, we didn't have a lot of reserves in the bank. 
Um, we didn't know how long this would last, you know, now it's, we're in August and, you know, I, I'm glad I made the decisions I did because it would have started to impact financially us even worse than it already has. But, um, back then, you know, we were faced with a large amount of cash flow stopping, but, but a lot of money still going out. And my decision at first was I got to save these guys. So I'm going to pay the, they've already worked for a week. How the payroll fell when all this happened, they'd already worked for a week. Um, I need, I needed a week to make the decision. Um, so I was already committed to two weeks of payroll for 114 people. And at that point that took our, without any money coming in, that took our reserves down to nothing. Um, and so I decided at that point that I'd have to shut down three of the four locations. Um, because Bel Air was our commissary and where we made everything for all the restaurants, I decided to keep the Bel Air store open because I knew that I could grow off of that. Um, I have staff that was with me nine of the nine years that I was open. Um, and so I decided to keep a very minimal staff and try to navigate these waters for the first couple weeks and get my employees furloughed so that they could start collecting unemployment immediately and not suffer. Um, because there was no talks of what the PPP could be or anything like that. At that point, we made that decision. Um, I look back and wonder if that was the right call. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know if going down to the, you know, 25% of one store revenue was the right move, but I couldn't figure out how to pay people appropriately what they're worth and keep all the stores open doing 25% of our normal sales in comparison to the year before when we were able to open back up. And so it was a very, <clears throat> very, very tough uh, decision to make, but I made it with the employees first in mind. My staff is the number one thing I care about. Um, we had a saying at Bernie's that started our uh, culture, uh, which was called our MVP is our mission, our vision, and our passion. Our mission was to serve the best burgers and fries on the planet. Our vision was to be the most dominant burger company on the planet. And our passion, which was the most important thing, was to make people feel special. And it started with our staff and, and that trickled down onto the guests. And that is how we made every decision at Bernie's for the entire time. Every manager knew that. And that if something came up, they would run it through that filter. And so if I wasn't living that, making people feel special, taking care of my staff, then, uh, I, I would be going against my culture. And so immediately my thought was, how do I take care of my staff? I don't have enough money in the bank. Me and my partner don't have the finances to put more money into the business because we've, like you said, we built four restaurants in five years. We had three food trucks the first uh, five years of business or four years of business. 
uh, stand at the the Texan Stadium, um, you know, for two years. Uh, and so, you know, we really were cash strapped because we had made the investment of growth to grow uh, because we were afforded so many great opportunities in the city of Houston to, to do spaces all over the different parts of the city that I got to bring my food truck to. We decided to grow and doing so you, you open yourself up to exposure of uh, having limited capital. And because we had had a formula, because we had had, good success with Bel Air and then good success with Katie. We kept opening stores because we understood the formula. We understood that we can make all of our stuff, control the quality uh, in one location. We could provide it to all the other stores. We could, we could focus on culture and training the staff and, and, and hiring um, the passion and training the skill. And, and that was our, that was our formula. But, but what we didn't take into account is being told to shut down and then being told to take a business that we really weren't good at, which is to go, you know, we make our fries from scratch. We made our, our, uh, everything. And so a burger wrapped up in a to-go bag waiting for 10 minutes for a driver to come take it, then drive 15 minutes to someone's house. The quality just continues to suffer. Not to mention the fact that those companies take anywhere from 20 to 30% of every dollar that is being charged on their site from the restaurant. They also take 11% from the customer, plus they're charging a delivery fee, plus there's tip. The people who have made out on this pandemic are the DoorDashes, the Uber Eats, the Grubhubs. Those guys are basically the person who is twisting the knife in the restaurant side right now. Uh, if there's one thing I want to get across on this and people listen to is uh, do not use those sites. Those sites do not benefit restaurants. Call the restaurant, get on their website, order their food, and go pick it up. That is the best way for a restaurant to transact to go food. But to pay an Uber Eats 30% for the delivery um, it's going to be the death of all restaurants. Yeah. At it's, least it's robbery is what it is. It is. And it's new restaurants can get savvy. Um, and, and, you know, going forward in this business, I will always keep in mind that, you know, someone's taken 30% of, of this. So I'm going to charge that 30%, figure out how to build that in to my costs. But like the places that were around like me who were, around before the DoorDash started and then they come in and they start taking 25, 30%. So like, you know, and they tell you, you can't, you can't charge more than what your menu price is. Like that's just, that's just highway robbery. So, and, and knowing what I told you early in our, uh, this point that I was bringing up about uh, how much a restaurant makes, you know, it doesn't make sense. The math doesn't add up. Like, I'm basically working for negative 16%. Like it just doesn't work. So, um, you know, that, that a lot of decisions had to be made. Um, um, but, but ultimately, you know, the, uh, the, the reality is like 
there's no way to stop the bleeding, right? And for me, um, we got to basically May uh, from that point, and and we were just hemorrhaging, um, and it was getting to the point where it was affecting my health, both physically and mentally. Uh, the stresses of, of what it was, um, you know, being being um, having to make these these really hard decisions with with you know people coming at me, uh, landlords, everyone uh, for for what they you know uh, what they are owed, and and the 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 problem with this is not just me, right? And my restaurant and my employees, there, there is a absolute ripple effect down to the people who I bought my towels from, uh, and my, uh, my aprons from like they, this affects the way this works is it affects so many outlying businesses. The, the restaurant business itself employs next to the government, the second largest group of people in the United States. But then no one's talking about, because they're not adding that into that number, all the things that restaurants buy from that are being affected by this. You know, the food purveyors, the, the person who's growing the lettuce out there and who, who you know, depended on the food industry, uh, not just the grocery stores to sell their product. And so there, the, the ripple effect of this is what, scares me more than anything else you know we had to make a decision unfortunately that uh affected something that you know i came up with and, and started um but i'm a positive person i tried to make that clear to my staff from the beginning when i made this decision um that i you know when one door shuts two doors open and so um i've always stayed positive uh, and made the decisions about the culture that I created. How am I taking care of the people? How am I going to continue to take care of the last 15 people that are working out of the 114? And in, in May, I, I was faced with, I'm not going to be able to afford to continue to pay for these people and continue to operate the business and start paying off debt and like, the formula wasn't working, um, and uh, that final decision, while as hard as it was, honestly, when I made it, I told my partner that this is what I think we should do. He agreed, um, and then when we made the decision public, uh, honestly, it, it was a huge weight lifted off my shoulders um, because. From March till then, um, you know, there was a lot of relationships that were tested, um, both personally and uh, work. You know, it's just there's there's a lot that uh, gets strained when you know you've got a machine that's operating at the rate that we were operating and to have that shut down uh, and stop 
with no real warning. You know, we, the other side of this is, um, and probably really what helped kind of just make this decision was the quality of food we were getting. Um, I pride myself in buying the top one third of all choice beef and grinding it. And towards the end, the price as well as the quality, it just was like, I can't charge my customers $7 more for this hamburger because that's what I would have to do for the price of beef that went up uh, right around April, end of April. The price is just, you know, when all the, the meat packers were getting shut down because they're uh, tested positive and that supply chain kind of tightened up and all the food purveyors were trying to go into their back stock from March in their freezers and sell frozen beef at an astronomically high rate. It was just like, so now you're asking me on top of all this to sell a shitty product. So Justin, I, I, I actually remember the, the, the day that it happened. I remember I was sitting down on, on my computer to do research for the podcast. Uh, the date was May 28th, I believe. I, I was scrolling through my usual feeds on Facebook, Reddit, and Instagram. And I came across a video posted on the Bernie's Instagram of, of a bearded man. And I thought, hey, that's a pretty cool beard. Let's see what this man has to say. <laughs> uh, that video ended up being your announcement that Bernie's was closing its doors. And Justin, I got to tell you, man, like... <laughs> I nearly cried watching that video, and I'm not even joking. The The weight of the announcement you were making that you were shutting the doors of something you put your blood, sweat, and tears into for nine years, is it, it's extremely apparent on your face and, and even in your voice. Um, Bernie's Burger Bus would go on to serve Houston until the 31st of May. How were those final days? Uh, insane. I mean, we um, we didn't make it to Sunday. Um, the 31st, we, um, we made it till Saturday morning because on Friday there was no social distancing. There was every bit of, I think I served 900 people on Friday. Uh, people were lined up all the way down to the end of the shopping center, um, and waited, um, which was awesome. Um, and damn, it was frustrating too, because, um, you know, you see the love, you see the, um, the outpour of support. Um, but you also know that it's not sustainable. Like you're not going to have days like this, unfortunately, every day. And, um, while it was uh, it was an amazing it was an amazing thing. I was I, it was kind of bittersweet because I was like, I wish you guys would have been doing some sort of this since March, you know. Um, and and um, I, I know that sounds uh, you know a little uh, selfish. But um, that, if I had to describe the feeling and be completely transparent and honest, that was the feeling then. I don't feel that way now, but then I definitely was kind of pissed off. Like, I, I'm not, I don't feel like, and, and I'll still say this, like, uh, 
I don't think Bernie's is done. Like it's done because I lost all my locations. It's done because I've had to go through what we're going through now to close this down. Um, but damn, I can still cook. <laughs> I can still make all these recipes. The intellectual property is not like it's owned by some, someone else, but me, um, and my partner. And so like, it's not done. I still feel like there's a world where that may come back. And if there's a savvy investor, like I had the playbook, you know, like, uh, uh, a franchise, that was kind of our next play was uh, franchising because we had found somebody who can make all of the stuff that I made from scratch without adding preservatives. And we were working with them and we spent a ton of money, um, shelf life testing and doing all kinds of stuff to get it to the point where we could get that same ketchup and mustard and pickles in New York or LA or Shanghai or wherever. Like we had figured out the formula and how to take all those homemade things, which separated our, our concept across any other burger place, which is, you know, how we ground the meat, how we made the, all the condiments from scratch, um, like hand cut fries or whatever. We had figured out the formula and the playbook from where we could just hand it over to somebody from opening, uh, to starting the construction to, to opening day. Like we, we had it all kind of buttoned up, teed up, ready to go. And then this, this, uh, this, uh, pandemic hit and it, you know, someone who's going to listen to this is going to go, damn, I've got a lot of money and I want to <laughs> see this thing flourish. Let's so, hope so. Yeah. Get at me. Get at <laughs> me. Reach out. Yeah, so what you're saying yeah. is like right before all this happened, you had essentially I'm saying there's a chance. Chris. I'm saying there's a chance. <laughs> you had just reached a new gear in the Bernie's Burger Bus franchise. And unfortunately you weren't able to to drive in that gear for very much for very much longer. We and didn't that, even get that, to that try really it. Yeah, yeah, that that's a bummer. Yeah, we didn't even it, get to try it. It really we had, is. we had two ghost kitchens that we were about to to unveil, meaning like not only were we cooking the same delicious burgers and fries, but we were about to do two other concepts that came out of the Bernie's kitchens from just the delivery standpoint and whatever got hot, meaning like whatever sold a lot, whatever did well, some of that would probably would have made it onto the Bernie's menu in mm. some way, shape or form. So we had like, we had a lot of plans, um, in January and, uh, we were just in February and March kind of figuring out timelines on how we we're, you know, cause we had four stores, how we we're going to unleash these things into the four stores. And then, you know, we were talking to franchise attorneys on how we would, we would set up, you know, a franchise and that, you know, we were about to spend over a hundred thousand dollars on, on, doing the whole franchising thing, uh, just from a legal perspective, not even investing on advertising that we were selling franchise, all that. So we had like, you know, we had big plans, big, big plans. And so, um, yeah, when you don't have revenue coming in that, <laughs> yeah, it really <laughs> it stops, stops everything <laughs> stops those ideas. Yeah. So Justin, it, it's been a couple of months now where we're still struggling with the pandemic and, I mean, there's there's very much a new normal in in our daily lives. Like, how how have you moved on? What what does the future look like for Justin Turner? 
Um, you know, like I said, um, when one door shuts, other doors open. And so, um, you know, fortunately, uh, the city, uh, just like I do, I love, I love Houston. The city has, has been very supportive and, um, I've been, uh, offered, uh, several amazing, great opportunities. Um, I have settled on one that, uh, I can't say just yet, but, um, it is, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing that uh, I am able to, uh, be afforded these opportunities. It's, uh, it's amazing that I will probably be able to take a lot of the people that I, I got to work with at Bernie's, uh, along with me on this new journey. Um, and yeah, I'm just, uh, I feel very grateful. Uh, right now, you know, I, I, the one thing that, that we haven't talked about at all is my, my wife, you know, I got married, uh, during this pandemic. Oh, congratulations. Uh, and so, you know, while all the crap has been going on, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of great things that have happened. And I'm just trying to look at all the positive things, you know, I'm a, I'm a positive guy. I'm a, um, not gonna sit and continue to um dwell on the past uh like i said i believe there's a future for bernie's maybe it's not this year or next maybe it's five years from now but i do believe that there's a future that um we come back and we make a comeback and um so there's there's always going to be a glimmer of hope when it comes to that there's always going to be what's new for me now. And, and I'm super excited about this opportunity and like, yeah, I just, I, I feel, uh, I feel like you gotta be positive right now with all the negative crap that's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. people need to just sit back and, and think about what's good in their life. Cause it Positivity. could be a lot worse. That, that's yeah, the way to go. That, that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to bring with this show. Positivity there. There was a, a motivational speaker I used to listen to. He's a gentleman from, out of Dallas. And, and there was a phrase he used to say a lot that I was very fond of. And he says the the worst thing about pity parties is that no one shows up and those that do don't bring presents. <laughs> right. Yeah. Totally. And it's, it's just all about a positive mindset. And I, I feel you very much embody that. And that's a very good thing to have. Um, last thing for you, Justin, I, I asked David this question when I had him on and he gave me such a great response. And I realize you've probably answered this about three times over the course of the podcast, but I like to present the same question to you. Just point blank. Justin, do you think Bernie's will be back? Oh yeah. Without a doubt. But you know what? Even better, even more than that, I'm going to continue to cook. I'm going to continue to bring the same style of hospitality in any type of food that I do going forward, any type of project that I do going forward, I'm going to put in the same great attitude. So while it might not be a hamburger, it's still going to have the same principles. Yeah. See what I did there? Uh, Same (laughs) principles as uh, Bernie's uh, in the sense that we are always going to be doing it to make the, customer, the staff, and everyone who's associated with it feels special. And um, yeah, cheeseburger is a cheeseburger, man. I could do it anywhere. It might not not be called Bernie's Burger Bus, but Uh 
So you heard it here first, folks. Bernie's Taco Bus coming at you next year in Houston. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Justin, you never th- know. thank you so much for this amazing conversation. You were great. Is, is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Uh, no, you know, just uh, keep supporting your local restaurants. They need it right now. Um, don't do it through these uh, third party services. Please just go call them. Go there ask how they're doing, buy the food from them directly. If you can tip, everyone needs a little bit of extra cash nowadays. The the hospitality Uh industry is hurting. So please help. Tell a friend how good the food was. Justin, thank you so much. Tell three friends. Yeah, tell three friends. There you go. Absolutely, Justin. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with Justin Turner. Now, I agree with David Atkins when he said that Justin Turner will be back. He's lived a pretty interesting life, and from what he said, he's far from done. I want to know your thoughts. Leave a comment or reach out to me through social media. You can find me on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter as Chris Vasquez underscore VO. And don't forget to visit the brand new Houston Happenings Patreon. And remember, if you have a story you want to submit or a Houston hero you want to nominate, all you got to do, it's real easy, guys. Use the hashtag HoustonHaps, that's Houston H-A-P-S, to submit your story and get your opportunity to be featured on the podcast. Once again, guys, thank you so much for listening. Be safe out there and stay Houston strong.